You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. As Aaron mentioned last week, we're starting a new series on living peaceably in a violent world. As you probably know, one of our core values here at the parish is peace. And that's also a central value of the broader Anabaptist tradition that we're part of. And yet at this time of year, our minds turn to war. Not only the contemporary conflicts in Ukraine, Myanmar, Afghanistan, and Somalia, But of course, with Remembrance Day last week, we're also reminded of the horrible world wars of the 20th century. So much brutality, so much heroism, so much loss, so much courage, so much cruelty, and so much sacrifice. As we look at those conflicts from both past and present, not to mention the everyday violence and inhumanity in our own streets, Peace can seem like a naive ideal that only a Shirley Temple with rose-colored glasses could hope for. In that context, it seemed that it would be worthwhile to spend some time looking at what Jesus teaches about peace. Peace that's not just a word on a wall plaque, but peace that enables us to bring the kingdom in a violent world. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was an ad campaign that propelled a small tobacco company that you've probably never heard of into one of the top 10 American cigarette brands. The company was Terryton. You've never heard of them, right? Their gimmick was a charcoal filter that was supposed to remove some of the harshness from the smoke, and they particularly marketed, targeted women smokers. Their sales pitch was that their product was so smooth that it engendered tremendous loyalty in their customers. So much loyalty, in fact, that their customers would rather fight than switch. Their ads featured an attractive woman often seen in profile in some unrelated act of strong will. And when she turned, you'd see her cigarette and a black eye. Apparently, she had physically fought someone who tried to change her brand. Rather fight than switch. It was a powerful tagline for nearly 15 years in the tobacco industry. It was even picked up by the campaign for a U.S. presidential candidate. Rather fight than switch. That there are principles and even preferences that are worth fighting for. Are you wondering what Jesus might think about such a notion? Well, wonder no longer, because he tells us exactly what he thinks in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records it in the fifth chapter of his biography of Jesus. And at the risk of spoiling the suspense, he says we should rather switch, cheeks in this case, than fight. Here's what he says. You heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't use violence to resist evil. Instead, when someone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other one towards him. When someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak too. 
And when someone forces you to go one mile, go a second one with him. Give to anyone who asks you, and don't refuse someone who wants to borrow from you. The standard of proportional, just, fair retribution was well established in Jewish culture and religion. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Indeed, the law goes into quite a bit of detail about very specific aspects of retributive justice. If you strike a slave and blind him in one eye, you must set him free as compensation for the lost eye. If you strike another man and he loses a tooth, he gets to knock out one of your teeth. You can see there is a sense of fairness there, but it all seems so barbaric to us. It seems barbaric to us because of our context. The context when the Mosaic law was given was quite different. Prior to the law, instead of proportional payback, exponential retribution was the norm. When we were looking at Blessed, is the Peace, Blessed Are the Peacemakers last fall, I referenced Lamech. Lamech was one of the early figures in Genesis, and we might be tempted to diagnose him with anger issues. Here's what he says. I have slain a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. The text notes that he particularly addresses this information to his wives. I, I'm not sure I want to go there. Bit of an angry guy. So if we see an eye for an eye as barbaric, it was clearly a big improvement over the ethic of Lamech. And thinking of the children's game, Simon says, Moses asked God's people to take a giant step forward out of Lamech's violent tribalism. And now, Jesus is asking them to take three giant steps forward. He is saying that if someone hits you, hurts you, demeans you, or disappoints you, don't fight back. Jesus says it's better to switch, to offer the other cheek, than to fight. That we can't use violence to resist evil. By turning the other cheek, I make it perfectly clear that I will not be drawn into violent retaliation. It's not just that I didn't get my fists up in time to defend myself with force, it's that I refuse to be violent. Most of us are seldom in situations where we are tempted to physical violence, but a few verses earlier, Jesus made it clear that violent language is also off the table. That if you call your brother or sister an idiot, you have violated the law of love just as much as if you had murdered them. Next, Jesus says that we aren't going to get into disputes in defense, that we aren't to get into disputes in defense of our legal rights. If someone is going to take you to court to sue you for the shirt off your back, don't run and get a better lawyer. Run and get your better coat and give that to him as well. This makes me think of that beautiful scene in Les Mis. Jean Valjean has just been released from 19 years of unjust imprisonment. He's hardened and bitter. 
But his cynicism is challenged when he's shown compassion and grace by a bishop who gives him a meal and a room for the night. Even so, Valjean repays the hospitality with crime, stealing the bishop's valuable silver cutlery and plates. The magistrates catch Valjean and bring him back to the scene of the crime so the bishop can denounce him, as he surely will. But the bishop doesn't respond like Lamech, ordering Valjean to be put to death. And he doesn't respond as Moses taught by demanding full repayment. Instead, he responds like Jesus and answers Valjean's ingratitude with generosity. To the astonishment of the police, the bishop agrees the valuable silver was his, but then he turns to Valjean, calling him friend, and gives him the matching silver candlesticks, saying that he had intended to include them in the gift. It's a breathtakingly beautiful moment. Next, Jesus says that if someone asks you to go a mile with them, go too. This is, of course, the source of the maxim, go the second mile for someone. It was based on the common practice of Roman soldiers who were on the march to grab any person on the street and make that man carry their pack. This was legally permitted, but the soldier wasn't allowed to make the man carry it for more than one mile. Jesus challenges that thinking. In his kingdom, we haven't begun to be generous yet if we're only meeting the legal requirement. Instead of trying to beg off and get out of doing it, Jesus says they're to generously help this member of the despised occupying Roman army and carry his backpack for two miles. Hold on, it gets worse. Jesus next brings the teaching that some consider to be his most distinctive. Other religions, including, of course, Judaism, advocate love of neighbor, but Jesus calls for more. He says, you heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for people who persecute you. That way you'll be children of your Father in heaven. After all, he makes his sun rise on bad and good alike and sends rain both on the upright and on the unjust. Look at it like this. If you love those who love you, do you expect a special reward? Even tax collectors do that, don't they? And if you only greet your own family, what's so special about that? Even Gentiles do that, don't they? Well then, you must be perfect, just as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies and pray for people who persecute you. That way, you'll be children of your Father in Heaven. This is again an echo of the Beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's not that loving, peaceful responses to the violence around us earn us our salvation, our right to be called children of God. No, it's that when we act that way, we most closely bear the family resemblance. When we res respond non-violently, we carry the fragrance of Jesus into foul and fetid places. When we love our enemy, we bring the kingdom. To draw the picture even more clearly, Jesus points out that God is equally gracious to both the enemy and the faithful, both the wicked and the good. It's not that the good folk 
get brilliant sunshine and the evil get cloudy with sunny breaks. They all get the same sunshine and the same rain. I've pointed out before how Jesus models that at the Last Supper when he washes the disciples' feet. He evidently treats Judas with the same care and tenderness as the others. My instinct, if I had let Judas come at all, would be to relegate him to a dark corner with a dry crust of bread. There would have been no mystery as to who the traitor was. But the disciples were mystified, because Jesus' treatment of them showed no distinction. That, that just amazes me. Jesus not only taught enemy love and nonviolence, he lived it. In his crucifixion, he gave the ultimate evidence that he would rather die than fight. He endured the pain and humiliation of a rigged trial, brutal scourging, and a violent death. And yet, just as he instructs here in the Sermon on the Mount, he prayed for those who were persecuting him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We also see Jesus living out this ethic at the time of his arrest. Recall that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes up to him with a cohort of soldiers, Jesus greets him not with a sneer, not with condemnation, and not even just with grim stoicism, but with a kiss. And when he submits to being arrested, he makes it clear that it wasn't because he had no other options. He says he could have prayed for and gotten 12 legions of angels to fight on his behalf. But he didn't. You may also recall that Jesus had asked the disciples to bring a sword with them that night, something that always mystified me. Brian Zond, a writer and preacher who I often quote, says that Jesus instructs them to bring a weapon precisely because he wants to make it clear that the time for violence and retaliation is over. Luke records that when one of the disciples, apparently a better fisherman than swordsman, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus says, stop, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. Jesus says the time for swords is over. The time has come to heal rather than harm. This is how the prophet Micah described life in the coming kingdom of Messiah. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, and there will be nothing to fear. Jesus' teaching of a non-violent way of enemy love is clear, even simple. Yet it's anything but easy. When I look at the pool of selfishness, resentment, frustration, and insecurity in my own heart, I wonder how I can ever get there. When I was working as a scientist, I occasionally sat on panels reviewing applications for research grant funding. Usually there would be so many applications that only the best 10% would get funded, and sometimes it felt like we were comparing apples to oranges. So it was really helpful if we could decide up front what was the most important criterion. Is it that it's a truly innovative idea? 
Is it the scientist's track record? Is it whether this is a rising star young researcher? Is it because the results would have a high impact? If we could decide up front what was most important, the discussions and decisions ran smoothly. In the difficult decisions we face when responding to enemies, I think that Jesus actually brings some real clarity to which criteria, which values we need to rank highest. Let's take a look. Should personal safety be the highest principle? After all, it's pretty foundational in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, apparently not. Instead of retaliating or running when we are struck, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. Should guarding my legal rights be the highest principle? Apparently not that either. If someone wants to sue me over some property, even the shirt on my back, I'm not to lawyer up and head to court. I'm to give it to them and gift wrap a coat to go with it. Is the most important thing setting boundaries so that I don't get taken advantage of? Nuh-uh. Jesus says, go the second mile. Better to be taken advantage of than miss an opportunity to love. Boundaries are healthy and even necessary, but they don't get us off the hook from needing to love. When we're faced with enemy hostility and can think of a dozen different ways we might respond, Jesus gives us a clear guiding principle, a beacon light to guide our decision. And that light is love. When confronted with an enemy, with cruel or thoughtless treatment, or even when I'm ignored, my response needs to be conditioned on how can I show love? Martin Luther King Jr. saw this issue more clearly than most. I'm going to end with his words. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love.